Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear J.C. Cassis. Florida. Land of unending horrors. I know it's a joke, but it's fucking true. (laughs) The state is fucked up. (laughs) That and more. But before we get there, I wanted to say that, you know, we've made silly stamps.com ads before, but we really do use stamps.com. And there really is no getting around the fact that it's a hell of a lot more convenient than going to the post office. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time going out of your way and spend more time growing your business. Stamps.com really does make mailing and shipping easy. You use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Stamps.com does all the thinking for you. You get your own digital scale. It'll calculate the exact postage needed. It helps you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. You can join over half a million small businesses that use Stamps.com and never go to the post office again. Um, Let's see. One to at least three members of the Risk and Story Studio staff use Stamps.com, and we really do love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, as odd as that may sound, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes that digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. (laughs) And one of those three people I was just talking about that used Stamps.com is Chris Castiglione, a member of our team. He created our website at risk-show.com. He also created an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class 
and commented on just how easy it was to learn to code with the one-month video courses. But the one-month guys have an even more popular course, One-Month Rails. One-Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step -step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app like a simple photo sharing app in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person to help you out while you learn. In one month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you'll be helping support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Jizan and Kamian behind me now. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. We're calling today's episode The Downward Spiral. This is a very special episode of Risk. It's just one story, one radio-style story, as told by the producer of this entire business, the business manager and producer behind Risk and the Story Studio, J.C. Cassis. Some of you may have no idea who J.C. is, uh, might not have known that there was a producer behind all this. But the truth of the matter is that in uh, October of 2009, when we started Risk, I was penniless. I was honest to God, at the end of my rope, I uh, was way in debt, and I had to go way further into debt to start this venture. I spent the first year and a half, I think, or maybe two years, losing my marriage in order to make this happen, going further into debt. I was a mess, and uh, you know, it had been 12 years since I had had success in my career. I had had 12 years of just being rejected and rejected and rejected by the entertainment industry. I kind of felt that I'd been left behind by a lot of my friends in the industry. But at the same time, I had really shot myself in the foot with all the stage fright and just lack of confidence. It was a, it was a rough time before I started Risk. I was really drowning in alcohol for a while there. And to be honest, I almost gave up on life uh, more than once. 
anyway, uh, once I started Risk, I, I knew that because I am a creative person, I do not have that much of a business mind. I knew I needed help. And if you listen to the first uh, season or two, which you can find for 99 cents an episode in the album section at iTunes, I, I was regularly during the hosting segments saying, can anyone out there help us with the business side of this venture? We really need a producer business manager. JC reached out to me. It took a lot of convincing. She was a, a, a fan of the state, my sketch comedy group from, you know, she had watched us on MTV when she was a little kid. And um, she just insisted that she thought she could help. You would not be listening to this uh, or any episodes of Risk <laughs> that you've heard in the past three or four years, if it weren't for JC, she took all of that debt and started turning it into us being able to stand on our feet. She organized it all, but really, more than anything else, she became my best friend and uh, my guardian angel. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because something happened to JC a few months ago, and she knew she wanted to tell a story about it. But we joked when it happened to her because the condition of living that she found this character that you're going to hear about in this story uh, reminded her so much of the condition of living that she found me in before she helped me get on my feet and helped me make this show the reality that it is today. JC's friends used to ask her why she approached this project as such a mission, such an obsessive mission. And she would tell them, one of the members of the state, I'm trying to save his life. So buckle up. This is a rather heavy one. You'll be able to hear from the emotion in her voice that she recorded this very shortly after the incidents actually took place. Here she is now, the producer of our show. This is J.C. Cassis with a story we call The Downward Spiral. It was my birthday weekend, and my biggest problem at the time was that I was mildly annoyed that I had to work on my birthday, which is also Halloween. It was a Friday night, and Halloween's my favorite holiday, and I didn't want to be in an uncomfortable outfit performing with my band. I wanted to be in a weird outfit partying with my friends. And then Sunday came. On Sunday, my mom called me to say that she'd received a call from someone with a thick Irish accent that was so thick that she could hardly understand him. And he had said he was my uncle's boss, Michael. And Michael was trying to track down a relative of my uncle, Fred, because Fred was in the hospital in intensive care and had never given Michael an emergency contact number. Fred hated Michael and had never told him anything about his life, but now he was unconscious and in terrible shape, so Michael had looked into Fred's call records, and he vaguely knew that Fred had a sister in New York, so when he saw a New York number in the records, he called it and asked my mom if she was Fred's sister. She said she was, and he told her that Fred had been walking barefoot around his neighborhood in Miami, Florida, with bloody gashes, scrapes, and bruises all over his head and arms, 
the cops took him to the hospital where he had a stroke and they diagnosed him with advanced lung cancer that had spread into his bones. He was about five foot nine, but he only weighed 93 pounds. I can't believe it, my mom said to me. She's British. <laughs> I'm not just making a British accent for no reason. She is British. She said, I always said I knew one day I'd get a call like this. Fred was always so secretive about his life. When we talked on the phone, I'd say, Fred, we've got to keep in better touch. You're my only brother and I'm your only sister and we're all each other's got. What if something happened to you? Mom said they didn't know why Fred was so beaten up. Maybe he'd been attacked by criminals in the street or something and it was really freaking her out to not even know what had happened. Up until now, she had been so frustrated by Fred because he wasn't friendlier and more open, but now we didn't even know how long he'd be alive. So four days later, we went down to Florida to visit Fred in the hospice that he'd been moved to. Michael met us at the airport and drove us there. Michael just sort of unloaded about everything that was going on. He said, I took some video of the house because you won't believe me until you see it for yourself. The smell of mold when you walk in the door will just knock you over. My wife and I could barely even breathe in there. There's buckets of water on the floor everywhere to catch the rain. The ceiling's falling in everywhere and the rain just goes right into the house and the vines from the outside have grown in through the ceiling. The pool's covered in algae and moss and the whole place just looks like it's about to fall down. He handed me his iPhone and I watched a short video of the inside of the house. It was horrifying. My mom and I were not looking forward to going over there. But first we had to go to the hospice and see Fred. And immediately as we pulled up to the entrance to the hospice, I was transported back to when I was 15 and going to visit my grandpa in his Florida hospice because apparently everyone in my family goes to Florida to die. It was the first time that I had seen a person who was dying and I remember being so scared as I walked down the hall toward my grandpa's room. I felt like my feet had to carry me to a place that my eyes and my body did not want to go. I mean, I wanted to be there for him, but I didn't want to see something so scary and just face death. And now I was right back in that place, back in a hospice, back in Florida. We opened the door and immediately that smell hit us, the smell of old people, of disinfectants used to clean up bodily fluids, the smell of illness and depression and hopelessness, and nurses who hate their jobs and patients who hate their nurses because they're the only ones around to take their frustrations out on. <laughs> the tears welled up in my eyes and my throat started to ache. As I asked one of the reception people where the room 10 was, they pointed down the hall. And when we looked into room 10, my mom and I were really confused. There was just one skinny old man with this sunken face lying asleep on the hospital bed with his head tilted up and back and his mouth hanging open with only three teeth in it. But he had an aquiline nose that I recognized from my childhood when I'd seen him last. And the short, straight brown hair and hands that were the male version of my mother's. And we noticed the scrapes and the bruises on his forehead and all the scabs. And this man who looked like he had just died at the age of 97 was my uncle who was still alive and only 68. I was so afraid that he would awaken with a jolt at any moment and scare the shit out of us that I just wanted to get out of there and come back when he was already awake. My mom's jaw just dropped as she looked at him and she turned to me and she whispered, I can't believe how bad he looks. <laughs> <laughs> 
he looks like he's already dead. And you know, for all the wisdom that my mom has, I can't believe how often she just says the wrong thing with an earshot of the people who shouldn't hear it. Mom, I whispered, you can't say that in here. He can probably hear you, and that's not good for him to hear. Let's step outside and talk to the nurse. I couldn't hold my tears back anymore. But I didn't want Fred to hear me cry, and I didn't want my mom to be any more upset, and I didn't want to cry in front of this nurse that I'd never met. So I just turned my back to the nurse and my mom as they spoke about Fred. Now, I know he looks a little rough, but I can assure you he's comfortable. He's not in any pain. We're giving him pain medication, and he's just asleep right now. Can he talk? My mom asked. He has trouble talking because of the stroke, but he makes some noises when we go in to check on him. Should we wake him up? We'd like him to know we're here. You can try talking to him, and he'll hear you, but he might not respond. You can come back later if you'd like and see if he's awake. My mom and I walked back into the room. Fred, JC and I are here. We came down to see you. I felt so terrible for not being able to say anything. I just couldn't talk because my throat was so tight that I knew that if I tried to get a whisper out, I would probably just sob and then he would wake up and then I would get scared and it would be awful. So I just stayed silent. Fred... We love you, and we'll be back later, okay? We'll see you then. So we turned and left. Soon after that, Michael drove us a few minutes down the road to the house that my uncle had lived in for the last 40 years, and there was yellow police tape cordoning it off. Michael had gone with the police to break in and have the locks changed after Fred was hospitalized, and he opened the side door and led us through the garage. As soon as we got inside, we could see what he was talking about. I looked up and a huge hole had opened up in the ceiling of the garage and the chunk of ceiling that had fallen out was just smashed on the floor directly below the hole in a scattered pile. As we opened the door leading into the house, Michael started to talk again in his thick, fast, (laughs) almost unintelligible speech. You see how this door handle's broken off? I think Fred cut himself on the handle when it broke because it's all sharp and jagged in here and I think that's where he got those gashes on his arm. That's why there's blood all over the house. Hearing that I was about to see blood everywhere really scared me. I mean, there's a reason that I'm not a police officer, I'm not a surgeon. I don't want to see real gruesome shit in my life. And now I was about to see my dying family members dried blood. Michael pointed out a bloody hand swipe mark on the door and when he opened it, I was shocked and terrified to see bloody swipe marks and handprints all over the dryer right next to the door. I could only guess that Fred had fallen and gotten cut on his way down and then tried multiple times to pull himself up, but the dryer was slippery and he was covered in blood and it took him many, many tries to get all the way up. As we walked carefully into the house, I gripped my arms tight around my chest and just tried to stay as compact as possible. I didn't want anything in that house touching me unexpectedly. I looked up at the ceiling and there were huge holes going all the way through the roof and little rays of Florida sunshine were poking into this dark, terrifying house. The floor underneath us was so squishy because of the moisture and rot from being rained on and growing mold for the last 14 years. The electricity of the house had been cut off, and so the only light that was coming in came through this small window over the kitchen sink that had a diamond-patterned gate over it as if it were a window on a jail cell. Among the ruin of this kitchen and this house... 
the dishes were clean and, and put neatly into a drying rack in this organized way next to the sink. My uncle cooked for himself and was very particular about what he ate. And it seemed that even in the midst of all this insanity, he was still cooking and cleaning and feeding himself and being responsible in one little way. But then we looked into the living room and we couldn't believe our eyes. The entire floor was just covered with rubble from the ceiling that had caved in everywhere. And there were these vertical blinds that were hanging on these like floor to ceiling windows that looked out onto the pool area and they had just completely fallen down on one side and the metal blades of the blinds were all contorted like like the roots of a tree that had been felled in a storm. There were leaves and twigs that had blown in from outside everywhere. And there were vines growing down the walls and hanging down from the ceiling at eye level. There were cobwebs everywhere and every stuffed chair or couch had literally just exploded and collapsed and they were standing lopsided with stuffing bursting out of every rip in their fabric as if someone had just tried to annihilate them with a knife. There was a calendar from 1996 on the wall and a stack of bank statements over a foot high on a table, and they went back to the late 90s. The papers on the bottom of the pile had actually become bonded to the table by black mold that had started growing all around the borders of them. And there were buckets of water on the floor to catch the rain, just as Michael had said, and they were full. Why would he put down a bucket to catch rain, but he wouldn't just fix the roof? I looked at one of these buckets and we noticed that there was a large, beautiful black lizard with a ridge down its spine floating in one of them with his nose just peeking above the water. I've always loved lizards and my brother and I always used to chase them and catch them and keep them as pets and let them go every time we would come down to Florida as kids. Part of me hoped for a moment that maybe this lizard might still be just barely alive and we could fish him out of the bucket and at least prevent any more tragedy. From happening in this house. But as we approached him, it was clear he was already dead. And I couldn't help thinking about how this poor little innocent lizard had come into this horrible place and then slipped into the bucket of water and died of exhaustion and drowning after trying forever to get a grip on a slippery plastic rim. And no one was there to help him. It was just another tragic part of this experience, and I just remember thinking, God, Florida, land of unending horrors. I know it's a joke, but it's fucking true. The state is fucked up. Anyway, I noticed that there was one circle of clear floor space directly under this round table in the living room. And it was because the ceiling had caved in in the huge collapse right above that table, covering it in chunks of ceiling about a foot high, and no one had ever cleaned it up. There was a painting on the wall that was so rotted by rain and mold that you couldn't even see what it used to look like. We moved into the bathroom, and there it was. More bloody handprints on the door and a semicircle of brownish-red dried blood around the foot of the toilet. There was obviously something mentally wrong with my uncle, and I imagined him picking himself up in that entranceway where he had fallen, bloody and cut up, and just wandering over to the bathroom and peeing for a minute while his blood just flowed freely from his arm to the floor. Oh, look, Michael said. A swarm of mosquitoes has started living in the toilet. Thankfully, before I could look, he had flushed them away. The clear shower curtain was yellowed and cloudy. 
but the shower itself seemed to be really clean. There were all these kind of weird contradictions in the house like that, where it's like, why is he cleaning the shower again, but the house is falling down? We walked into the bedroom, which was just as depressing and scary as the rest of the house, but much darker. There was a ceiling fan that was hanging so low that it was like two feet over one side of the pull-out couch bed that my uncle had been sleeping on, so that if he had turned it on and then rolled over, he could have been horribly injured. It just didn't make any sense. The bed sheets were dirty and grayed with dust, as well as stained with spots of dried blood, and yet there were also short stacks of folded towels or clothes on the bed, which looked as if they'd been washed years ago and then put on the bed and left to rot. There were more buckets of water on the carpeted bedroom floor, and in the two closets there was mold and water damage all over the walls, but then another weird contradiction. There were also a handful of these brightly colored, well-cared-for, cleaned and ironed plaid button-down long-sleeve shirts and pressed pants hanging in there, as if they'd been transported from a normal house. As I was looking in one of the closets, feeling baffled and still scared, Michael just came up behind me and poked me in the back and said, Boo! <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny, but now's not really the time. I was really taken aback by Michael's behavior. I mean, he had only just met us and we were experiencing one of the most terrifying and weird and heartbreaking moments of our lives. And he still felt it appropriate to just joke around like that and scare me. Of, of all the things he could have done, he poked me trying to scare me. I mean, I'm a person who appreciates dark humor, but a part of me could definitely see why my uncle would have hated this guy. A few minutes after we had entered the house, the heat and the humidity and the horror had really started to get to us. I think I've got to get out of here, my mom said. I'm starting to have trouble breathing in here. We went out into the driveway as the sun began to set, casting a strong yellow light over all of us. Uh, excuse me, are you Fred's family? This pretty middle-aged brunette woman was coming toward us from across the street. I'm Arlene, uh, Fred's neighbor. We lived across the street for 13 years. Uh, hello. I'm Fred's sister, and this is his niece, JC. I'm so sorry about what happened, Arlene said. You know, my husband is friends with the police officer who picked him up, and, and he said they took him to the hospital. Is he all right? No, my mom said. He's been moved to the hospice because he has advanced lung cancer, so he probably doesn't have long to live. Oh, gosh, I I'm so sorry. You know, we would always see him in the neighborhood walking or riding his bike. He would wave at us if we said hello. He, he was always polite, but he really kept to himself. You know, he never really talked to anyone. My kids would sometimes play ball out here, and, and one time I remember the ball went over into his yard, and I just remember him saying, you know, I don't mind them playing out here, but if you could please keep them away from my house, I, I'd appreciate it. You know, he always kept to himself, didn't seem to want to talk to anyone. Yes, my mom said, when I called him, if I could ever get him to pick up the phone, he would never tell me anything about how he was doing, and, and we've just seen the house, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just completely shocked. We, we had no idea how bad it was. The next day, we went back to the hospice to see Fred. This time, he was awake. Fred, it's me and JC. We came down from New York to see you. <sighs> he said, his speech heavily slurred. Though my mom has trouble understanding unclear speech, I've lived my whole life in New York, interacting with incredibly thick foreign accents all the time, so there's almost no English speech that I can't understand. For the whole time that we visited my uncle, I served as a translator for my mom. You've gone a long way. You didn't have to do that. 
I don't want all this fuss. What did, what did he say? He said we've come a long way and we didn't have to do that and he doesn't want all this fuss. Well, we, we heard you had an accident. We wanted to come see you and see if you were all right. I'm fine, but I hate it here. I hate these people. Which people? The nurses. I hate them all. I want to leave. What did he say? He said he wants to leave. Well, Fred, I know you want to leave, but you've had a stroke and you need to recover before you can go home. I didn't have a stroke. They told us you did. I didn't. I'm fine. I want to get out of here. I hate it here. The nurse came in with a tray with milk and an entree with meat in it. My uncle has been a vegan for over 20 years and not a non-committal, eternally lapsing, aspiring vegan like me. He was hardcore. He hadn't slipped up once since he had started. He used to make tofu turkeys for Thanksgiving. During our time in the hospice, I remember him proudly saying, I haven't had processed food in 20 years. I'll make everything myself. Just fruits and vegetables, you know. I realized that he had been out of his home and unable to make his own food for a week, and here was this nurse bringing him milk and meat. Do you have any vegan food for him, I asked. We have vegetarian options, the nurse said, trying to help. But from my own three days going vegan, I know that you actually have to break it down for non-vegans who usually think that vegan and vegetarian are the same. Yeah, but he's vegan, so he can't eat milk or eggs or butter or cream or any animal products at all, and most things have animal stuff in them. Is there a way he can have something that doesn't have any animal stuff at all? I'll see what we can do, she said. No one told us that he was vegan, so we didn't know. It was just another in a long list of heartaches. My uncle was helpless and alone in this place, unable and uninterested in speaking until we arrived, and when his body needed nutrients the most, he was surrounded by food he couldn't eat. You know, Fred, we would have loved to come visit you any time down here, and you could have come to New York any time you wanted. I always said that. I mean, why didn't you come see us? My mom asked. I didn't think you wanted me there. I remember when I visited, you were pushing me like this he said as he jerked his palm forward and back. When was I pushing you? I, I, I don't remember that. I was asleep and you woke me up and you were pushing me and pushing me. And when we went out to eat, you got so upset that I was asking what was in the food. But I'm vegan and I can't eat a lot of the things. It just seemed like you didn't like having me there, so I didn't want to bother you anymore. Oh, Fred, I, I didn't mind that you were asking about the food, and I might have nudged you to wake you up, but I didn't mean to push you like that. I think it just took a long time to wake you up, so I was nudging you, but I was happy that you came to visit, because we don't see each other that often. I always told you on the phone that you were welcome to come back, and we would have loved to see you. Oh, I didn't think you wanted me around. I remember the last time we had seen my uncle when he had come up to visit us in New York all those years ago. We had been shocked by how different he looked. The previous time we had seen him before that, he was still married to his ex-wife, Alana, and they were a happy couple living in that house in Florida when it was still in good condition. They smoked and ate meat, and they were totally normal. They used to visit with my mom and dad and brother and me, and we enjoyed hanging out with them. But then they got divorced around the same time my parents did in the mid-90s, and Alana took all their pets and moved up to New England to start over. 
They had no kids, and now my uncle was all alone in his house. It was around that time that he quit smoking and went vegan and stopped telling my mom much of anything about his life. He never said why Alana had left him, but he was clearly very upset by it. It was definitely like a turning point in the way that he behaved, and I think it was the beginning of his decline. He stopped keeping in touch with people as much, and he would just bike alone for miles and miles and miles every day. At the hospice, he told us that just before he had been admitted to the hospital, he would bike 90 miles every weekend. It was really hard to believe that a man with advanced lung cancer that had spread to his bones would be able to do that. I mean, he had three teeth. He weighed 93 pounds. How can he bike 90 miles? But when I looked at his bare leg that was sticking out from under his sheet, his long, thin thigh was all lean, toned muscle. It was tanned up to the knee and then glistening white and nearly hairless up to the hip. I thought he was maintaining admirable diet and fitness, but cancer was deteriorating him from the inside out. Anyway, when he had come up to visit us 10 years ago, he was markedly different from the man we remembered. We went to a pool, and he took off his shirt and took a nap on the lounge chair, curled in a slightly fetal position on his side. And from the biking and veganism, he had become almost frighteningly slim, and his vertebrae poked pointedly out of his skin, but with his Florida tan and fanatical biking routine, I thought he actually sort of looked pretty good for a man in his mid-50s. At the same time, something was clearly off, though, because he was missing about five of his back teeth. And my mom asked him why they were gone and whether he was taking care of his dental health, but then he'd just get annoyed and say, I'm fine, leave me alone. Looking at him now in the hospice bed, I wished he still looked only as bad as the last time I'd seen him. Now he was clearly mentally ill and just physically destroyed. Back in the hospice, I, I couldn't help but feel guilty for not having reached out to Fred much myself. I mean, sure, my mom was the adult and closer to him as a relative, but I could have made more of an effort to reach out as well. I mean, I'd been an adult for years, and I never really tried to see how he was myself. Fred, I said, I'm really sorry that I didn't make more of an effort to talk to you and see you. I, I would have liked to see more of you, and I could have tried harder to make that happen, and I'm sorry that I didn't. It was one of the few times in my life where I've gotten to face having done something in a way that I regret and apologize directly to the person who deserved it. Looking back now, I know that nothing I could have done probably would have made a real difference in what was happening in his life, and I couldn't have stopped his downward spiral, but at least he would have known that I cared about him and I would have proved it. Then again, I think if we had known what was going on with him those last many years, it would have absolutely driven my mom over the edge, so... Maybe it all worked out the way it had to in order for her to stay sane. It was eating at me that a man who was so private didn't even know that we had been to his house without his permission and with his boss that he hated, but if we told him it would only make him upset, so we didn't. And that combined with the fact that we knew he didn't even believe he'd had a stroke and we didn't know if he realized he was in a hospice, not just a hospital, and that he was going to die very soon. But we just played dumb and acted normal and lied. <laughs> That's what they say you're supposed to do when you know people are going to die. I really wondered what the hell was going on with him mentally. I mean, he was acting normal and having a normal conversation with us, remembering things, articulating his feelings, but why would you make sure to never eat processed food, but then not care that black mold had infested your house and the air that you breathe? It didn't make any sense. Playing dumb, I said, uh, how's your house, Fred? I haven't been there in so long. Well, it's sort of falling down around me. 
what do you mean? Are you okay? I mean, is it safe to be there? It's all right. It's just sort of falling apart. But I'm comfortable there, you know. I want to get out of here and go home. Make myself some of my own food. Every night that we were there in Florida, we would go back to our hotel and my mom would be a wreck. I hadn't seen her so stressed out since the divorce and her own battle with cancer about 15 years prior. I just don't understand how he could live like that, she said. I mean, it's heartbreaking. How can he live in that house? Each time she'd say something like that, I'd try to explain it as I understood it. I mean, it seemed that he'd gotten to the point where it didn't really register with him. When you watch something deteriorate slowly over the course of 15 years, you just don't see it the same way someone else seeing it for the first time does. That's what I believed had happened with Fred. He let his house go to waste bit by bit. You know, he didn't fix a crack in the ceiling and it just got bigger and bigger until a huge chunk collapsed. And by that point, maybe it was too overwhelming and he just continued to let it go and it just continued to get more overwhelming until it passed the point of no return and he just accepted his fate. Here he was in this clean, comfortable hospice bed in a clean, bright, well-kept room And all he wanted was to go back to his dark, moldy, dirty, falling-down house. It was awkward (laughs) seeing him there, because after the first half hour or so of talking, it wasn't that easy to make conversation. I mean, he was not a super social person, and he wasn't really interested in small talk. He was interested in trying to get out. And after about five rounds of him just begging us to help him get out and us telling him that the nurses had said they couldn't even safely move him into a wheelchair in his condition, he would just get sneaky about it. I mean, instead of saying he wanted me to pull him out of bed, he just said, pull on my arm. Are are you sure I won't hurt you, I said? No, you won't hurt me. Just pull on my arm. I want to sit up. I pulled on his hand and he pulled as hard as he could to lift his torso into a sitting position, but he didn't seem to be making it all the way up. So I reached behind him to support his back and his hospital gown was open in the back so that my bare hand landed on his bare back. I could feel that he was just skin and bones and yet he felt so heavy. I couldn't get him all the way up. Finally, he just gave up and sank back into the mattress, still holding my hand. I want to get out of here. He said, looking into my eyes pleadingly. Can you please pull me out of the bed so I can get out of here? I'm sorry, Fred, but the nurses said if we try to take you out of the bed, you'll get hurt because you can't hold up your left side. I'll never forget the way as soon as I said that, his face just completely went cold and he snatched his hand away from mine in frustration, as if to say that if I couldn't get out of there, I was of no use to him and he didn't even want me around anymore. I tried to give him what physical affection I could, you know, holding his hand as we talked and stroking his hand with my thumb or smoothing his hair as he drifted off to sleep. Each time the nurses would come in to help him adjust his position or check in on him, I'd notice they would put on latex gloves, even if they were only touching his back or shoulder. It almost seemed insulting, like, I can't even touch your shoulder because you're dirty, but obviously I knew it was just probably policy that they had to follow. I remember reading somewhere that human touch is absolutely essential to people's well-being and that without it, they eventually literally die. And I thought about how Fred had probably barely been touched by anyone in 20 years. So now in his final days, I just wanted him to feel a warm, loving touch from someone who cared about him. It wasn't going to save him, but I believe that on a deep psychic level, it had to mean something. After that visit, we had to go back to his awful, awful house to gather as much documentation of everything as possible. 
Everyone we had spoken to about what was going on said that we had to get his ID, his wallet, bank statements, deed to the house and cars, mortgage statements, and anything else that would prove who he was and what he had so that when he passed away, we could settle his estate. But again, I just, I felt this grossness about the fact that we were going into his private home without his permission and rifling through his closets and drawers and taking all the documents that linked him to his earthly identity and possessions. Logically, I mean, I knew that he would never need them again and that we would and that he would never come back to this place. He'd never know that we'd been there. But the thought of taking those essential things from someone else, especially someone you care about and for whom you're the only people that he can turn to, it just felt really fucked up. It felt like stealing. It felt like sneaking around. We gathered everything we could find and it amounted to about four huge garbage bags full of papers and files. Everything was moldy and dusty and we didn't want to get all this mold in our hotel room. So when we got back to the hotel, we just sat on the outdoor walkway outside our room and sorted through my uncle's whole private life. And these bewildered vacationers would pad by to get ice and bring it back to their rooms and step around our stacks of financial records and politely act like we were not insane. When we were finally done with all the sorting, we threw three huge bags of documents into the dumpsters behind the hotel and we brought the important papers as well as a box of photographs from throughout my uncle's life into our room. This flimsy cardboard box had been on a high shelf in one of his bedroom closets, right by a water-damaged wall and under a hole in the roof through tons of Florida storms. But somehow, miraculously, it was like completely untouched by the elements. It was so weird. It was definitely like one of the only things in the house that wasn't moldy and damaged. As I flipped through the pictures, I saw my uncle laughing with his friends on a boat they were sailing. There he was getting married to Alana, looking happy and healthy and surrounded by friends and family. There he was in his 20s, standing next to my mom in the Caribbean. There he was at a house in the country with Alana and their friends, talking and laughing in the summer. There he was with me and my brother as little kids, all of us smiling and hanging out in his house. In all of them, he was someone who had just ceased to exist a long time ago. I wondered if divorce and depression was really all it took to wreak havoc like this on a man. Over and over again, this whole experience was showing me why you can't give up on your happiness when bad things happen. You can't just let it all fall apart. You can't push everyone away and expect to survive. And your mind can be the most dangerous beast of all. The next day, it occurred to me to try to find something that we could bring to Fred in the hospice that he could actually eat. Luckily, there was this raw vegan juice store, which even when I'm saying it in this context sounds so douchey, but fuck you, it's like what he needed. (laughs) So there was a raw vegan juice store in the strip mall by our hotel. I picked out a green gazpacho, a carrot orange turmeric juice, and some other flavors. We got to the hospice and told Fred we'd picked up some raw vegan juices for him. In true vegan fashion, right up to the end, he scrutinized the ingredient list, assuming there'd be something problematic in there, but as a former vegan myself, I know which labels pass muster and which don't, and I'd already scrutinized this label myself. And sure enough, he was willing to try it. And since the left side of his face was droopy from the stroke and he had only three teeth, it was really hard for him to drink something without some liquid dribbling down his chin. So as he sipped the gazpacho, I held a towel around his chest, and each time he dribbled, I gently wiped his face. It's good, 
he said after the first sip. And for the first time in a week, I felt some relief and some hope. I mean, finally, he was getting some food. Finally, he was making an effort. It seemed that his spirits were improving. I knew he'd never get completely better, but I really hoped that at least he might get to the point where maybe he could get out of bed and maybe even walk a few steps with a walker and a nurse or something. I just didn't want to think of him never even being able to get out of bed again for the rest of his life. Since we didn't know what the situation would be before we went down there, we had actually booked our flights to get there on Thursday and return on Saturday, and it was already Saturday afternoon. We realized that we had to leave to catch our flight, so we started saying our goodbyes, not knowing if we'd ever get to see him alive again. My mom leaned over the bed and gripped his hand in hers. We have to go, Fred, but I love you. You're my only little brother, and I love you, and we'll come back soon, okay? I love you too, Fred said, and what was definitely his most emotional and sincere statement since we'd been there. It seemed that in that moment they were patching up whatever misunderstanding they'd had years ago, and that finally he was letting his guard down and letting us in. As we turned to walk away, I saw him smush his fingers into his sunken cheek and look desperately sadly out the window as if he knew that the only people who were there for him were leaving and there was no way out of that room. I felt so horrible leaving him there and thinking about what he was going through just tore me up. But I was glad that at least now we knew what the situation was. We knew that he hadn't been attacked. We had gotten some quality time in at least. And maybe now that he was eating something, there was at least a glimmer of hope. But two days later, I called the hospice from New York to check in on him. And the nurse said that his ability to swallow had completely broken down. And the juices that I had brought were too thin for him to ingest safely. His only option was to drink this stuff called thickened water, which was the consistency of honey. We decided we should go back down that night, and we ended up staying for five days that time. It was five days of hospice visits, Fred begging us to get him out of there, nurses saying no to every single little request he had because there was nothing he could do besides have a little thickened water and rest, and starting the process of finding legal help to get us through the mess. With everything that was going on, I, I knew that as shitty as it sort of sounds, it was essential that we take a moment every day to just relax and take a little advantage of the Florida weather and the sunshine and the hotel pool. I mean, we couldn't sit in the hospice all day. I hoped we would never go back to that horror movie house, and there was no use in us staying cooped up in the room. So we went downstairs and I got in the pool. As I was dog paddling around the edge, I saw this little black shape floating in the water. When I came closer, I noticed it was a little baby lizard, exactly the same kind of lizard that I had seen dead in the bucket at my uncle's house, black with a raised ridge along its spine and a pointy little face. It was clearly panicked and had been struggling to get to the edge of the pool for a few minutes, but the pool was lined with these slippery tiles and it couldn't get a grip with its tiny little hands. I grabbed it and fished it out of the water and climbed out of the pool, and I could feel its tiny little heart pounding on my index finger pad and its eyes were half closed as if it were woozy and exhausted. You know, I always feel so bad for animals when I'm holding them, little animals like that, because I'm this huge monster that could just crush them at any moment, and they're this tiny little being that's completely at my mercy, and there's no way for them to know that I would never hurt them, and I love them, and I just want them to be happy. Call me crazy. I like talking to animals, okay? <laughs> and so I said, you know, it's it's okay. You can relax. I just wanted to save you from the water, and I just want to hold you for a second, and then I'm totally going to let you go. I thought about how his skin was covered in these pool chemicals, and it was probably really bad for him. So I took my water bottle that I had, which was full of this really cold water that I just filled it up with, 
and I unscrewed the cap and I poured a little water over his body to wash him off. But as soon as the water hit him, he immediately just sprung into total alertness and flew off my hand and onto the ground. And he wriggled along and I just sort of herded him into the grass so that he wouldn't get stepped on. I don't know why my uncle had to go through all this shit and why my mom and I were the only people who could be there for him and why we couldn't get to that lizard in his house in time to save it. But I was so glad that at least I had been in the right time and the right place to save this lizard while I still could. And it was pretty much the only time that I felt good that whole trip. As the days went on, Fred's condition got worse and worse and he slept more and more and spoke less and less. Each time I would put water in his mouth like a drop at a time with the tip of my finger, he would try to grab the mug for me and tip it into his mouth and drink normally, and each time I had to remind him that he couldn't do that or he would choke. I felt even worse for him now than I had before. I mean, now, not only could he not walk, not get out of bed, not get out of that room, he couldn't even have food or water. I mean, I, I shuddered to think how parched and desperate he must feel and how it must have seemed to him that everyone was trying to take even the simplest pleasures away when really we were only doing what we were told. I had already started telling my mom not to bring water, not to drink water in his room because he couldn't do it. But she didn't realize that even gum would get her in trouble when she took out a piece and started to chew it. Can I have a piece of your gum? I popped out of the room to ask the nurse if gum was okay. I'm sorry, but no, that's not safe. If he chokes on it, he'll die, so he, he really can't have it. <sighs> Fred, they said we can't give it to you because you might choke. I don't care. I want some gum. Give me a piece of your gum, please. I'm sorry, Fred. I, I can't. I don't fucking care what those fucking nurses say. I want a piece of gum. Can I have it, please? Fred, they're saying it's not safe and we don't want you to choke. Why can't you give me one piece of your fucking gum? It was awful. There wasn't anything we could do around him that wouldn't remind him of something he couldn't do or couldn't have. So when he finally started to nod off, we said, Okay, Fred, we'll, we'll let you get back to sleep, but we'll come back tomorrow, okay? Don't come back. Well, we'd be happy to come back if you want us to. No, don't come back. I don't want you to come back. I don't like all this fuss. that would be the last thing he would ever say to us and it would be the last time that we saw him alive. You know, people always joke that dying alone is such a bad thing and I don't know if it's how I'd prefer to die, at least if I have the option of having friends and family around, but when I spoke to other people who had recently lost loved ones, they all said that a lot of people want to be alone when they know that they're gonna die. They ask people to go away and you should do what they say. So we did and we flew back to New York that night. When I got back, I'd call the hospice every day to see what was going on. And each day the nurse would tell me that Fred still hadn't had any water and couldn't swallow, so he just slept a lot and was being kept comfortable. As the days went on, I felt worse and worse thinking of how he must feel. I mean, seven days with no water, no food, no movement, eight days, nine days. I can't comfortably go a few hours without water. It sounded like torture. 
I imagine that his life must be so bad at this point that I was hoping for his sake that it wouldn't go on much longer. (sighs) Then five days after we had last seen him, I got a call from a Florida number on my cell phone. I already knew what it was. When I picked up, (sighs) I heard the nurse finishing a conversation with a colleague before putting the receiver up to her mouth. And I hear her go, (laughs) I know. And then turn to the phone. And I just took a mental note of this unbelievable dark comedy moment of this nurse not thinking to finish her conversation before picking up the phone and dialing to tell someone that their relative was dead. And instead, picking up, dialing, let it ring for a little bit, and then finish your funny conversation and go, (laughs) yeah, hello? (laughs) I mean, if it had been a movie, it really would have made me laugh. But in real life in that moment, it was just sad and it was just sort of a joke. And I heard her abruptly change her tone when she turned to the phone and she said, uh, Miss Cassis? Yes, it's me, I said, waiting for her to say it. I'm calling to let you know that unfortunately Fred has expired as of about noon today. <sighs> okay, thanks for letting me know. And thanks for all you guys did for him. We really appreciate it. Of course, she said. I'm so sorry for your loss. (sighs) Finally, the worst of this bizarre horror story was over. You know, there are a lot of things that could have made this whole experience easier to deal with. Like if my uncle had taken better care of himself or hadn't been mentally ill or had acted more normal or if he'd been nicer and more likable. It was really weird to try to make conversation and spend quality time with someone who sometimes didn't seem to want us there or who only wanted us there to take him home. And if we had, he probably would have told us to leave as soon as he got there. It was awkward to sit there as a pretty progressive person while he watched Fox News on the hospice TV and started talking about how much he hates Israel when they mentioned some Middle Eastern news. I mean, the last thing you want is to have like an awkward political discussion with someone you haven't seen in a decade who's about to die. And even though I could have made more of an effort to keep up a relationship with him, I realized that he could have done the same with me and he didn't either. There was this weird feeling that we were only there because we were related and we were the only ones who were going to help him and there was nothing else making the whole situation make any sense. It's just weird to feel like you love someone because you're supposed to, because they're family and that's what you do. You love your family. But yet if there weren't that family bond there, there would be absolutely no bond there, especially given the behavior and the personality. I felt like I was giving a lot of caring and trying to be super nice and trying to think of every need and accommodate it and not getting much thanks at all. But then when I think about what frame of mind he must have been and I really can't hold it against him. I hope I won't act like that if I'm ever in that situation, but there's no way of knowing how it'll feel. The week before he died, I remember he said, I I want to be uh, uh, incinerated. Is that the word? What's the word? Uh, Cremated, I said. Yeah, cremated. Just whatever's the cheapest with the least amount of fuss. I don't want anything special. So that's what we did. We had him cremated, and his ashes were spread at sea because he was always happiest when he was sailing. I can only hope that leaving his body and this world that he no longer fit into freed his spirit to be in a happier place. And given the way his life ended, there was nowhere to go but up.
A couple months after my uncle passed away, we got the opportunity to have lunch with his ex-wife's sister, uh, Jeanette, who we hadn't seen in probably 20 years. So we went out to lunch with her and we talked for hours about my uncle's life before everything went downhill. It was an incredibly meaningful conversation to me because after all the horrible things that we've been through and all the sad things that my mom had told me about my uncle's life, finally here was Jeanette saying things like, we used to have a wonderful time with Fred. We used to go sailing and we would have great conversations and everyone would be laughing and Fred was so funny and so sweet and his wife Alana would make the most wonderful food and we'd just have these beautiful, wonderful summer afternoons all together. And he was very social and he was a lot of fun to talk to and he was a great guy. And I just want you to know that your uncle was a really great guy before all this happened. And I remember hearing that made me cry because it was just such a comfort to know that there had been a time in his life where things went right and things were good. And that was really the first time that I was hearing that in so long. And it really comforted me a lot. And as much as it's terrible that he wasn't able to sustain that joy through the end of his life, just the fact that he had been able to experience it for at least a few decades out of his 68 years was a huge comfort. I was incredibly grateful for that lunch and for meeting Jeanette and having her tell me those things. And it really gave me a lot of context that I needed to hear to understand that his life hadn't always been the way that it was at the end. I just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody. <laughs> I don't know why I'm getting emotional about this. This is so silly. But no, sincerely, you guys make it possible. <laughs> because I'm just going to cry in everything I say in this episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening to me cry for 45 minutes, everybody. No, but thank you so much for the support that you give this show. You have no idea how much it means to all of us that you actually care what we're doing. And um, I can honestly tell you, <laughs> God, I cannot believe how emotional I'm getting. This is ridiculous. <sighs> I can honestly tell you that you guys supporting this show the way you do and telling your friends about it, <sighs> I think it definitely saved Kevin Allison's life. And in a lot of ways, the fact that the show succeeded really made my life way more livable than it was before this show came along. You know, working on this show really turned my life around and, and has been an incredible adventure. So I want to say thank you guys so much for supporting people telling the truth and making this world a better place by making people more aware that we're all the same and <laughs> I feel so fucking stupid crying saying this, but it's just the way it is. That like we're all the same in some really fundamental ways, no matter how different we are on the surface. I think if everyone in the world felt that, that was true, we'd be a lot better off. Stay here for the rest of your life 
I'll open windows when you want to look out at the transit of Venus across the sun. As you're gathering dust, ancient dragons and the cicadas come. Edges jagged as you're coming undone on the white soft feathers of your bed. This week, folks, this is Neil Finn behind me now. And don't forget that Risk is a very proud and very happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts. And just like all the other podcasts at Maximum Fun, we are listener supported. If you love what we do, remember that we rely so very much on the contributions, the donations from the people who listen. You can go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. You can make a one-time contribution or you can become a member. Just be sure to earmark it all for risk. And another way you can become a part of our community is by following us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Follow us and, and, and become a part of the conversation about the podcast and spread the word. Spread the word to your friends to start listening to the podcast. Tell them how to download it and all. And finally, don't forget to send us your stories. You can always pitch us stories about those most emotional, most memorable, most meaningful moments in your life if you just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash Submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. For sure it's getting cold outside. And they're all too busy organizing your life. But it's people that you lose. When you become a recluse.
So thanks for saving Kevin so he has more time to have more butt sex. <laughs> and um, keep the word spreading because we love you guys and we want to keep telling more ridiculous stories and sad stories and crazy stories for you all to enjoy. And uh, I know everyone on the Risk team is incredibly grateful for all that you guys do to keep us going and growing. And uh, Jeff, I just hope that you will put a lot of Kevin's burps and orgasms at the end of this. Because <laughs> that is exactly what we all need after all this crying. All right, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>